You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And you'll be turning to the book of John chapter 4 for the last time, at least in this series of messages. Next week we will begin chapter 5. John chapter 4, and we'll read verses 46 through 54 together. When you found your place, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer before we begin. My Father, we thank you that you have given us this book. It is the revelation of your will to us. It is the revelation of yourself to us. We want to hear from you. We thank you that we have the confidence that you have spoken in the pages of Scripture, your word. There is to nothing else can we turn, and there is no other place that we can look to hear your voice but in the pages of this book. It is sure. It is true. It is pure. It is holy. It is undefiled and untampered with, and we thank you that you have committed it to us. We pray now, O God, that you would be our guide and our teacher and help us to have obedient hearts to understand and to apply the things that are here written. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher as your word is our guide. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In John chapter 4, beginning at verse 46, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. We're looking at this man in John chapter 4, the nobleman, and one of the most remarkable aspects, and I think one of the central focuses of the whole passage, is this man's belief. He is set apart as different and unique from the rest of the Galileans in that his faith, his belief, was more like the characteristic of the Samaritans and the woman at the well. Without seeing any signs, without seeing any wonders, this man believed Jesus. But the belief that he demonstrates, though it was an active belief, he came from Cana or from Capernaum all the way to Cana, it was a committed belief. He believed that Jesus was able to heal his son, if Jesus so willed. It was yet a weak belief, an inadequate belief. There were some things about his belief which were lacking, and we looked at that last week. It seems that the man's faith, though it was a genuine faith, was not a fully orbed, fully formed faith in that the man seemed to think that Jesus had to be present with his son in order to heal his son. Thus the urgency and the sense of of panic, will you come down, please come down, begging Jesus to come. A second inadequacy in his faith was that the man seemed to think that Jesus would not be able to do anything for his son if too much time went by and his son were to die. And so he wanted Jesus to heal his son before his son died, And he wanted Jesus to come from Cana down to Capernaum to see his son. So he thought Jesus was, his faith somewhat pictured Jesus as unable to do something for his son if his son were to die 
and unable to do anything for his son unless he were present. And that's what we saw about the man's faith. Now we come to verse 50, and we see that this crisis faith that we described last week, remember I described to you the crisis faith, a faith that comes out of a crisis or a turmoil or some sort of cataclysm in your life, that type of crisis faith, though sometimes it's genuine, oftentimes it's not, sometimes the faith that is generated in the midst of a crisis is nothing more than a faith of human making. It doesn't last much longer than the crisis itself and then seems to fall away afterwards. This faith was not a crisis faith in the sense that it was an um, small or a temporary or a um, sort of a shallow faith. It was a deep faith. It was a profound faith. But it was a faith that needed some development. It needed some filling out. And the Lord takes the crisis faith of this man, this man's belief that he has in the middle of his crisis, and he transforms it into a settled, relaxed, peaceful, committed, convinced conviction of a faith all through the course of this miracle. So last week we looked at the crisis faith, and then today we'll see how this crisis faith moves to a convinced faith in verse 50, and then it goes to a committed or a confirmed faith in verses 51 to 54. So first verse 50, let's look at his convinced faith. Jesus said to the man in verse 50, Go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. Now that statement is not just Jesus' prognostication of the outcome of these events. It's not just Jesus saying, telling the future as it were, or looking forward into time and saying, No, your son's going to be all right. It's more than that. These words are Jesus being the great physician. The words are the words of Jesus actually affecting and working a miracle at that very minute through those words. We find out later on in the text that Jesus said this at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon or the seventh hour. And that, coincidentally, no, providentially, miraculously, was the very time at which the sun started to get better. So those words, go, your son lives, is really two things. It is the cause of the miracle. Jesus, by his spoken word, performs a miracle. And it is also the announcement of the miracle. He announces this to the father, to the nobleman, even while the nobleman is in his presence, and the nobleman has no physical validation for the words that are being spoken. He has no way of double-checking to see if it's actually true. But Jesus announces to the man that his son is living. And at that very moment, his son was indeed recovered, I would say, not even recovering. Jesus never did miracles which were a process or a length of time for recovery. When Jesus did a miracle, it was instantaneous. And when he said, go, your son lives, at that moment, his son got better. Healed instantly, at a distance. So go, your son lives. And the man took Jesus at his word, verse 50 says, and he believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went his way. Now that response from Jesus, go, your son lives, that I think is not exactly the response that the man was expecting. Put yourself in the man's shoes. He has come from Capernaum to Cana, traveled the 16 miles. He believes that Jesus is able to heal his son. He has requested of Jesus that Jesus come down to the presence of the son and heal his son. And Jesus responded with, go, your son lives. Now, what might the man have expected Jesus to say? As he came toward Cana of Galilee, he might have expected Jesus to say one of two things. First, he might have expected Jesus to say, okay, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Well, he wouldn't have looked at his watch, I guess. He would have looked at the sun and said, it's about midday. I guess we have time to get from Cana to Capernaum. So, sure, we'll go ahead and leave. We'll probably be there by nightfall. He might have expected Jesus to say that. Or he might have expected Jesus to say, we'll leave first thing in the morning. It's a little late in the day to start off. 
want to make sure we can get there before dark. We don't want to be traveling the roads of dark, so we'll leave first thing in the morning. He might have expected that, that Jesus to agree to come with him. Or the man might have even expected and anticipated, and if I were the man, I would have been preparing myself for the worst. The man could have expected Jesus to say, you know what, I'm in Cana right now. I don't have time to go to Capernaum. I'm not willing to make the trip. I have other things on the agenda. This is out of the ordinary. I'm not going to come down. The man might have expected Jesus to say that. Instead, Jesus says, go, your son lives. Wait a second. By what power? By what means? How do I know this? What do you mean go? I asked you to come. No, you go. Jesus didn't give the man what he had asked. The man had asked Jesus to come, and Jesus sent him away, told him to go. With nothing but his bare word, your son lives. Go your way. Go away. Go back home. Your son is living. Not exactly the response that the man would have expected Jesus to give him. He might have expected Jesus to come, but that's not what Jesus did. Instead, he gave the man a test. A test. And here's the test that the man was faced with. He has given to me nothing but his bare word. Nothing that I can verify scientifically. Nothing that I have yet experienced. He's given me nothing but a promise. Nothing but a statement. And here's the test. Am I able to place my confidence in that word and in that statement? Can I trust what he has just said? It's not what I expected him to say. It's not what I had asked him for. It's not what I wanted from him. It's not what I was hoping for. But he has made a statement to me. Can I trust the word that he has given to me? Is this one in in whose presence I stand trustworthy? Is he worthy of my confidence? Is he worthy of my obedience? Is he worthy of my faith? See, that's the test. The man didn't have any elaborate theological reasoning to lean upon. He didn't have any practical demonstration. He didn't ask Jesus for a sign. Jesus had given him no no sign, no wonder to convince the man that he could do it at a distance. I don't know what went through the the mind of the man. I don't know what he was thinking, but I know what I would have been thinking in a similar situation. We do know that the man believed Jesus was able, and then he was confronted with the reality that Jesus said it would be so. So something had to go on in the mind of this man where he processed the situation, processed the statement that he got from Jesus, and had to evaluate whether or not he would take this man, Jesus, at his word. Something like this. You know, I thought until now that he had to be present with me in order to heal my son. But if I believe that he is able to heal my son from across the room, what keeps me from thinking he's unable to heal my son from across the street? And if from across the street, then why not across the country? Does it really matter? If I believe that this man is sent from God and he does the works of God by the power of God and the will of God, if I believe that all that is necessary is his will and his word to do so, why does it matter to me whether he is in Capernaum and says that word or whether he is in Cana and gives that word? If I can trust him in my son's presence, can I not trust him in my son's absence? Yes. I can. There's no logical reason, if I believe he's doing this by the power of God, there's no logical reason why if God is all present, he's present everywhere, which this man as a Jew would know that. If God is present everywhere, it shouldn't matter whether the person who does it by the will and the power of God does it from Cana or Capernaum or Kentucky. Couldn't think of another C word that started with a C for the sense of, of, of alliteration. 
doesn't matter where he does it from. I can trust him, right? That's the, that's the test. And I think it's an intentional test on behalf of Jesus to reveal to everybody whom he had just condemned in verse 48 that this man took him at his word without a sign, without a wonder, without any miraculous demonstration, with nothing else but his bare word. He has said it is so. Can I trust that it will be so? That's the crisis of faith. That's the test. And this man's passed because it says in verse 50 that he believed the word of Jesus and he went his way. Now, friends, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Jesus did not give the man what he asked for. You notice that? What did the man ask for? Come from Cana to Capernaum. He asked Jesus to come. Now, ultimately, he gave the man what he wanted, what he desired more than anything else, which was his son living, right? But he didn't give him what his son, what the man asked for. He didn't give the man what he asked for in the way that he asked for it. Instead, Jesus essentially answered his request, but he did it in a way that the man didn't ask for and the man didn't expect. He did it from a distance. Now, I think there's wisdom behind that, and there's a reason why Jesus does it. Why would Jesus answer the man's request, show compassion on his son, but not do what the man asked him to do? It's for this reason. What was the inadequacy of the man's faith? The inadequacy of the man's faith was that he thought Jesus had to be present. And in order to show to this man and to his whole household that he not only can heal, but that he can do it from a distance, this man had to come to understand that much about Jesus. He did the miracle in a way that the man had not asked for, and the man did not expect. So Jesus did not give the man what he wanted, which was to come, and instead he gave him something different than he wanted, which was a command to leave. But at the same time, he did perform the miracle and did show compassion by healing the man's son. God to us does the exact same thing to us today. He still does the same thing. He grants us what is best for us, but he does not always do it in the way that we want him to or that we ask him to. You realize that? He grants to us what we need. He grants to us what is best for us, but he doesn't always grant us what we want. He always gives us what we need, but not what we want and not how we want it. Because God in his ultimate infinite wisdom in his infinite providence, in his infinite sovereignty, in his infinite knowledge of all things, knows me and knows what I need better than I do. And I don't know about you, but I have asked a million times for a million things that would not have been in my best interest. How do I know that? Because I didn't get them. But I am glad that God does not give me what I ask for, but that he denies me the things that I ask for and instead gives me things that I need in the way that he knows that I need to receive them. And not always the way that I want to receive them. God gives us what we need, but doesn't always give us what we ask for. The man got what he needed, but he didn't get what he asked for. And friends, it's the same thing with us. God does this by his grace. I want what God wants for me. And I don't want what God does not want for me. Does that make sense? Now, if I believe that God is good, and I believe that he's wise, and I believe that he is all-loving, and that he knows me better than I know myself, and he knows what I need, and he knows what is for my ultimate good, and that it is the desire of the Almighty God to give me what is most for my good, my eternal good, then I can trust Him and say, I want for me what He wants for me, and I do not want for me what I want for me. I do not want what God does not want me to give, does not want to give me. And so when He says no, or when He says wait, or when He says yes, but I'll give it to you in a different way, you and I ought to learn to be content with that. 
and to say I'm content with an all-wise God who doesn't give me what I want, but gives me what I need and gives me what is best for me and knows what that is. A second very crucial lesson that I think you and I can learn from the miracle is that the, the word of Christ is as good as Christ's presence. You see that, don't you? His word is as good as his presence. Ultimately, friends, what is salvation? Salvation, is it not, is taking God at his word and saying, I believe that what God has said concerning me, concerning his son, and concerning heaven, and concerning salvation is true. I have to take God at his word and say, I believe that I am a sinner because God says I am. And I believe that the death of this Galilean carpenter who claimed to be the son of God, and I believe was the son of God, was sufficient to pay the sin debt for me. And I will take God at his word that when I turn from my sin and trust in him for salvation, repent and believe, I will take God at his word that he will do for me what he has promised to do for me, which is to forgive me of all my sins, give me new life, give me a new heart, and give me eternity with him in glory. All salvation is, is taking God at his word in all of those things and saying, I will trust his bare word. I have never seen the risen Christ. Never once. No vision, no dream, nothing. I've never been transported to heaven. I didn't die and go there and spend 90 minutes there and come back and write a book. So I've never seen the risen Christ. I have never once in my life heard an audible voice or even a still small voice. None of that. I have never seen performed before me by a miracle worker, a miracle, a sign, or a wonder. I have never in my life met a God-ordained prophet of the Old Testament sense or an apostle of the New Testament sense. So what is it that I am able to bank my entire salvation on? One thing, his bare word. Repent and believe and I will give you light. Will I believe that? That's what salvation is. It's just taking God at his word. Do you know what assurance of salvation is? That confidence that says, I know I am saved, I am born again. Do you know what assurance comes from? It comes from taking God at his bare word. That's what assurance is. There's a lot of people who lack assurance. They don't feel that they can be sure that they're saved. They wonder if they're saved. Can God really save me? I really don't know if I'm saved. I hope I saved. I've, I've done through, I've gone through all the things, the steps. I've repented. I believed. I understand these things. And I thought I was saved, but I sometimes wonder. There's a lot of things that can cause a lack of assurance, but surely one of them is just simply not taking God at his word. Because when I lack assurance, basically what I'm saying is, I doubt that God is able to do what he has promised to do. He has promised me that he will gather in all of his sheep and not lose any of them. Not one. Not one. He has promised me that of all that the Father has given to him, he will raise them all up at the last day. He will grant them all eternal life. He will bring them all into the fold. And he will not lose one of his sheep. That is his promise. And so now the question is, can I take him at his word? Do I believe that having repented and believed on him and entrusted my salvation to him, that he will ultimately fail? Or will I take him at his word and say, he has said it is true, that is enough for me. And I will take him at his bare word. No miracles needed. No proofs need to be offered. Nothing else. No writing in the sky. No wing zing ding of an experience to no quiver in the liver. Just the bare word of Jesus Christ that he will save all those who come to him in penitent faith. How can I be assured of my salvation? Well, friends, I can only lose my salvation if one of two things happens. 
Number one, if Jesus Christ fails to do what he has said that he will do, and that is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. He cannot fail. He will complete what he has begun. Or I could lose my salvation if Jesus Christ ultimately does not do what he said he would do because he backed out of it and decided to change his mind and so prove himself to be a liar. I can hardly get those words to roll off my lips. That is unthinkable. My salvation is as secure as it possibly could ever be based upon what? His bare word. That's it. That is what I trust for my salvation. That is what I trust for my sanctification. That is what I trust for my security. Ultimately, I will get to heaven, ultimately, by nothing else but his bare word. He has vouchsafed it to me in his word. And he has told me I will do it, and I believe he can do it. Ultimately, everything rests upon the word of God. That's the crisis of faith. That's the test of faith that this man faced. Go, your son lives. Can I trust that? In spite of all of my emotions to the contrary, in spite of all of circumstances that are swirling around about me, despite all of the questions and doubts that might arise and assail me, can I trust his bare word? And you know what the answer to that question is, don't you? You know where I'm going with this. Of course I can trust his bare word. I need nothing else but his bare word. That's all I need for salvation and for assurance. J.C. Ryle writes this, He that by faith has laid hold on some word of Christ has got his feet upon a solid rock. What Christ has said he is able to do and what he has undertaken, he will never fail to make good. The sinner who has really reposed his soul on the word of the Lord Jesus is safe to all eternity. Now listen to this next statement. He could not be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written in it. End quote. You could not be any more secure in your salvation if you were able to step into heaven, open up the Lamb's book of life, and see with your very own eyes your name written in that book. You could not be any secure than you are today. Why is that? Because if you have trusted Him for salvation, you've cast your hope on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you have His word that you are safe, and that is more sure than anything else, anything else that could be given to you. That's the conclusion that this man came to. He believed the word of Jesus like the Samaritan woman, like the Samaritans, and opposite of the Galileans who needed signs and wonders, he believed his bare word, he believed the word of the Lord Jesus, and he went his way. Now that's rest and confidence, is it not? Do you see how that crisis faith through the statement of Jesus was turned into a convinced faith? The man went from pleading with him to come to resting in the fact that he could go without getting what he asked for and trusting the word of Jesus to grant him what he needed and what he desired. Now I want you to look at his confirmed faith, verses 51 to 54. And yes, we will get all the way through the passage today. His confirmed faith. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. There's some question about the chronology of how all of this unfolded, so let me sort of lay this out chronologically for you so you can you can follow this. There is the notation that the miracle happened at the seventh hour. That's either seven o'clock at night or one o'clock in the afternoon, depending on how John is reckoning time. Now, the miracle was confirmed to the man the next day, because as he was leaving and going back home, his slaves met him and said, your son lives, and the man said, uh, when did he start to get better? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour. So the day that the man finds out that he actually makes the trip home was not until the following day. 
Now, was John using the Roman reckoning of time or the Jewish reckoning of time? And I've, I've made notation as we've gone through the gospel so far. Every time that a time notation has been made, I have argued that he is using the Jewish reckoning of time, which I believe that he is. So it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon because the Jews counted the, the hours of the day from about 6 o'clock in the morning or sunup. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 would make it 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Romans counted from either midnight to, or from midday, noon. Seven hours would have been either 7 a.m. or 7 o'clock p.m. If it was the Roman reckoning of time, which I don't think it was, it would have been 7 o'clock at night, but I don't think it was 7 o'clock at night. It was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So the man at 1 o'clock in the afternoon had the conversation with Jesus and was told, go, your son lives, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Now the man, it's only 16 miles back to Cana. The man could have made the trip. If he had left right then, he could have made it back to Cana probably before nightfall, if he had really hustled. But he didn't. We find out later on that he didn't make the trip until the next day. He stayed the night in Cana, or at least somewhere outside of Cana, or maybe partway along the trip. But he is in no way hurried. It's not until the next day that his slaves come out to meet him and see him to tell him that his son is living. Now I ask you this question. The man arrived in a panic. Come, pleading with Jesus. Come, my son is dying. Please come and heal my son. And Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. And the man stayed the rest of the day. Didn't leave until the following morning. To what do you attribute such sudden lack of urgency and haste? Verse 50. He believed the word of the Lord Jesus. What do you worry about now? Go, your son lives. All right. No sense rushing the horses to get home or the camels or whatever they rode in those days. No sense tiring them out. No sense with a sense of urgency to go back home. He doesn't rush out to confirm whether or not it was true. He did what? He believed the Lord Jesus. I'll take him at his word. If my son is living, he will still be living tomorrow when I get there. So no panic, no sense of urgency. Get a good night's rest. We'll leave first thing in the morning. And that seems to be what the man did. Now the slaves, on the other hand, why did they wait until the following day when they could have made it from Capernaum to Cana that afternoon to give the man the news? Well, from the slaves' perspective... Imagine how this would unfold. You've seen your master leave in haste on his way to go fetch Jesus. So he has left early that morning. Your master is gone. You're expecting him back that evening because if he gets to Cain about midday, he's going to get Jesus uh, and bring him back with him. And if Jesus agrees to come back, the man is going to either arrive with Jesus or if Jesus doesn't agree to come back, the man is going to make it back before nightfall because of the urgency. The nobleman left in urgent haste, a panic. He had to go get Jesus. So the slaves would be expecting him to arrive probably about nightfall. Well, when nightfall came and the master didn't get back as they would have expected, they weren't going to leave that night because they didn't travel at night. They wouldn't have left that night. They would have left first thing the next morning about the time that the man left. That's why the slaves left the next day. It was obvious by then that the sun was better. Everything was fine. And they probably left in a hurry to go get to the master before he actually went through the problem of getting Jesus there. At least without Jesus needing to be there, they could meet them somewhere along the line and turn them back and say, no, it's all right, no one need you to come after all. So that's why the slaves left the following day. And when they arrived, they said to him, good news, your son lives. Now, if you're the master of the nobleman, I ask you to do this a lot, put yourself in his shoes. You've heard the word of Jesus, you have believed upon him, you spent the night, got a good night's rest, you're not worried at all. When you see your slaves rushing toward you up the road, what do you think? Do you assume good news or bad news? Depends on if you're an optimist or a pessimist, right? I don't think this man, for one moment, doubted the news that these slaves were bringing to him. They showed up. He believed the word of the Lord Jesus. 
He had nothing but Jesus' word to go on. That's all he needed. He stayed the night. He left the next day. And as his slaves rushed up to him, I don't think for a second he thought to himself, I wonder if this is bad news. No, no, because genuine faith that believes the word of the Lord Jesus wouldn't allow for that. Instead, he asked them this question in verse 52. He inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And what's he doing? Is he doubting the miracle? I don't think that's what he's doing at all. The slaves rush up. Your son lives. By the way, notice the repetition of living and life throughout the passage. They rushed up and they said, your son lives. This is what the man expected to hear. You know what I would ask? About what time yesterday did he start to get better? I think he knows the answer he's about to get. It's about the seventh hour. Yeah. That's... Well, they didn't look at the watch back then. That's about the time that Jesus said, your son lives. Seventh hour. And it confirmed what the man expected. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you understand what this is, what this is like. You come to some crisis point in your life where you say, I'm either going to believe what God says about this or I'm going to disobey and doubt this. And so by the grace of God and his providential care for you, you believe what it is that God has said about you and your situation. You choose obedience and you choose faith. And then you find out, guess what? God's faithful to his word. Didn't surprise you, but you trusted his bare word and he followed through on it and he delivered on it. And then what happens to your faith as a result of that? It's strengthened. And that's what happened to the man. It says he believed, he and his whole household. Now, is this a different belief than the belief in verse 50? In verse 50, it says he believed the word of the Lord Jesus and went on his way. In verse 53, it says he believed in his whole household as a result of what his servant said. It was the seventh hour. Yeah, that was the time that Jesus said, your son lives. What a coincidence. Not a coincidence, it was a divine act. And the man knew that and he expected that. So now having received the news of that, it confirmed his faith and it says in verse 53, he believed. Is that a different belief? It's not a different belief. It's a deeper belief. It's a deeper belief. He took God at his word. He found it to be faithful and true. And it just hardened his conviction and his convinced position in that. Suddenly his faith was strengthened. Now he understood. This one that I trusted, this is who he said he is. So when John says he believed in his whole household, what is it that his whole household believed? What did they believe? This is saving belief, not the belief like the the uh, Galileans who would believe on him because of the signs, not the belief like those in Jerusalem who believed when they saw the signs. This is a different type of belief. This is genuine saving faith belief. What was the content of their belief? When John uses the term believe all the way through this gospel to describe those who have embraced Christ and received eternal life, what he has in view is that they believed everything that John presents about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's it. What is it that I must believe to receive eternal life? I must believe that he is the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, that he's the son of God, that he's the son of man, that he's the son of David, that he is the Messiah, he is the coming king, he is the son of God, the ruler, the creator, he is deity. That is what one must believe to be saved. What is it that this man and his household believed? Everything that is necessary to believe for salvation and eternal life. And not just him, not just this man, but his whole household. Can you imagine the reception when he got back? Went all the way back with his slaves, sat down with his family, his wife, and I would presume he had more than one kid. We know he at least had the son, and embraced his son, and then said, wait till I tell you what happened. This is what unfolded. He tells them the whole story. And then from their perspective, they say, you know, it was right at that time that you were over there that our son got better and he was healed. And now look where he's at. And oh, the rejoicing and the joy. 
And then the man and probably his servants and his wife and his children would all say, this one is truly the Son of God. This is the promised Son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the Deliverer, the Savior of Israel. We can trust Him. And they believed His word and His whole household was saved. Now His whole household was saved. Let me ask you a question. Does that include infants? Does that include infants? His whole household was saved? Well, obviously, a household must include infants, so infants must be able to believe, right? Apprehend everything about Jesus Christ and believe as well? You say, no, infants can't believe. That's right. And the word household does not necessarily include infants. It can, but it doesn't necessarily include infants. It would be wrong for me to assume that infants are involved in the word household here and then to build a theology that says, obviously, infants can believe the gospel. Just as it would be wrong for me to see infants in a passage that speaks, or household in a passage that speaks of baptism and presume that infants were present and then say, therefore, we should baptize infants. Now, my paedo-baptist friends, and I know there are some who listen to the CDs and maybe a few here, I don't know. My paedo-baptist friends would never presume that infants are meant here in this word household and then suggest that infants can believe. I don't believe infants can believe. They can't. And I don't believe infants can be baptized because baptism is for believers. Infants can get wet. But I don't believe that they can be baptized. Baptism is for believers, those who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ for salvation and obeyed Him by following Him in believers' baptism. So we don't presume the presence of infants just with the word household. We don't do that in the Gospels. We don't do that in the book of Acts. We don't base our belief about believing and baptism on the presence of the word household. How many households represented here have infants in them? A couple. A few. But by no means the majority. So if I said to you my whole household went and did something, what would you presume? You would presume one of two things. Either that all of us went and did it, or all of us who were able went and did this. And that is how the word household is used in this gospel, I think, and in the book of Acts. It doesn't necessarily include infants. Now, if there were infants in this man's household, then here's what John meant. John meant that everybody who was of believing age and able to understand and believed of that household believed. So his slaves, his wife, his children, the man, anybody attached with his household, everybody part of his his home believed, who were of believing age. But it's also probable, I think most likely, that what is meant here is that everybody in this man's household was old enough to believe And so everybody who lived with this man believed. That's what the word household means. Now what do we make from this whole miracle? What do we learn? We've talked about the compassion of Jesus. We have talked about the the confidence that we can have in Jesus Christ and in His Word. We also see here how Jesus Christ is able, simply by the act of His Word and by the act of His will, to do whatever He has determined to do and that He is faithful to do it. We also see here that Jesus knows the heart of all men. We saw that back in chapter 2, remember? He didn't need anybody to testify him about men or what was in men because he saw the heart of men. He knew what was in man. He knew what this man's faith was like. And he knew what this man's faith needed to be more mature and fully orbed and finally come to fruition and be a genuine, saving, well-rounded, well-informed faith. And that's what Jesus did. There's one last lesson. This is important. And we'll close with this because we haven't talked about this in connection with this miracle. One final lesson. You and I see from this passage the benefit that is conferred upon us through affliction and suffering. 
Do you realize that if it were not for this boy's illness, if it were not for the affliction and the suffering that this family went through with this son, that they would have had no reason to come to Jesus? Do you realize that? They wouldn't have come to Jesus. It was the son's affliction. It was the suffering that that family went through, which was the means that God used in his providence to drive this family to come and ask something of Jesus. Without the suffering... There's no salvation for this family. The suffering was the means of revealing who Jesus was to this family. And as a result of their affliction, and as a result of their suffering, they came to understand who Jesus Christ was in a far deeper and richer and greater way than they ever could have without it. Is it worth it? Is the suffering worth it? Is the affliction worth it, if that's the fruit of it? Friends, I would suggest that it most certainly is. I close with one last quote from J.C. Ryle. Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is greater. Do you hear that? Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David and the nobleman who is before us, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 17. Let us beware of murmuring in the time of trouble. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that there is a meaning, a needs be, and a message from God in every sorrow that befalls us. There are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction. There is no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. The resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. Do you believe that? Do you believe that his suffering and his affliction and what he puts you through is for your good and for his glory? You must take him at his word. He is good, He is loving, and He is sovereign. And we can trust Him. That's the message of this miracle. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are good, that You are loving, and that You are sovereign. And we beg that You would help us to trust You, to take You at Your bare word, that You would reveal to us those areas of our lives where we do not trust You. We know that doubts do assail us and fears do um, buffet us. But we know that in the midst of all of that, you are able to strengthen our faith and to confirm us to the end. We thank you that you are faithful to do this very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.